Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. I felt like my problems were for me to deal with on my own. And I felt so weak, it was unbelievable. It's like, who am I? I was like, I'm pathetic. I don't deserve to be part of this world. People deserve better than anything I can offer them. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. Despite more than 1 in 20 people making a suicide attempt at some point in their lives, we never really talk about it. Suicide is still a dirty word, a shameful secret to be swept under the carpet, away from the prying eyes of our neighbours. It's often seen as a selfish act, a personal choice, rather than the most extreme symptom of the mental health challenges we all face as humans. On the news, in the press and in conversation, we still say committed suicide. Did you hear about so-and-so's brother? He committed suicide. But isn't the word commit usually used when we talk about crimes or sins? You don't commit a stroke, but you might commit a burglary. So why do we still talk about death by suicide or an attempt to die by suicide as if it's not a health issue? As a survivor of two pretty gnarly suicide attempts, I'm familiar with this stigma and how it can affect attempts at a meaningful recovery. What's the point in getting better when people believe you're selfish or thoughtless? This week's storyteller was forced to face just some of the challenges that can culminate in suicide. Depression, addiction, loneliness. Yet, like me, and most who consider, attempt, or die by suicide, he didn't want to die. He just wanted the pain of living to end. But we're the lucky ones, the ones who survived and found alternatives to suicide and are ultimately glad we did not take our own lives. But how do you get to the point where dying seems like the most viable solution to life's problems? Here's Josh Greenaway. I grew up in southwest England. Highly little market town where everybody knows each other. Everybody knows each other's business. I grew up with both my parents together. I mean, it wasn't necessarily the easiest relationship. My dad was very emotionally unavailable, both as a partner and as a parent. I never felt like I could go to him for anything. You know, so that was quite tricky because you, you kind of, it feels like something's missing. You know, I was bullied from a young age as well, like primary school, which then went into secondary school. Parents knew what was going on, but I never really sort of spoke about it. I think I felt embarrassed. Honest. I felt like nothing could be done unless I found a way to change myself to make them stop. And this is when I discovered alcohol. I had some really, really good friends that I was really close with. We all sort of started drinking, whether it was on the streets or at a friend's house. And it was kind of like I was looking for a seal of approval, a way of fitting in with a crowd. And obviously, that is, you don't understand it. You don't understand what's going on in these kids' heads to make them do that to you. Or they probably don't un- really understand the way that they're making you fit. You know, you're still developing as a person. 
you've got all these emotions going on and you don't know what to do with them. And I think that was kind of how I started to deal with it in secondary school. It was like, okay, this can work. This is how I can get people's approval. Like, oh, I'm this cool guy. Like, I, you know, you don't need to bully me. Yeah, I was probably in a really, really low place without sort of realizing it completely, like to the extent. After secondary school, I went to college. I was still going through this phase of trying to fit in with people and try, well, trying to find my people, I guess. Like, where do I fit in here? Because I'd never felt like I've had a place before. You know, I wasn't authentically myself. It's always been about trying to fit in. And I think that all comes from the bullying side of things. So even through college, I was in a really, really low state of mind. You know, there was times when I was going to the shop and getting vodka. I was drinking out on the bus on the way to college because uh, I just didn't want to deal with whatever emotions were in my head. At lunchtime, it would be a case of going to the pub, playing pool, getting drunk. And like, my tutor would knew what pub I was in, would come to the pub and be like, what are you doing in here? Like, you need to be in class. I didn't actually pass college in the end because I kind of, I lost interest by the end of it. You know, I think the drinking in a loose frame of mind, while I was so fragile, I just think I didn't stand a chance really. I ended up going into retail. So I worked for a supermarket up until the age of 19. Uh, got to a sort of management level there. And I sort of, that's sort of when I started to feel better. So I was actually in an adult environment. The drinking sort of subsided a little bit. It just, I still go out on weekends. But at this point, I'd sort of, I'd found more of a solid friendship group. You know, we used to text each other all the time. or like call each other up. We'd be like, let's go do this. Let's go do that. You know, and that sort of, for me, was so important, was finding that friendship group. But I was still searching for something. It felt like something was missing. I, I didn't know what it was, but I just felt this urge, like maybe traveling will help. Part of me just wanted to get as far away as possible. I was like, I need, it's like an escape. It was like, I can be who I want to be, and it is that rebirth. Josh flipped a coin on where he was going to travel. Heads, Australia. Tails, New Zealand. It landed on heads and I ended up in Australia for a year. Didn't know a soul. Started probably the scariest thing I've ever done. I'd never been abroad on my own before, but probably one of the best years of my life. When I came back in this space of a year, everything had changed. The friendship group I'd made had sort of moved on. I'm still in this young mindset of like wanting to travel the world, do all these amazing things and get all these experiences. They're starting to set up businesses, you know, there's, they're getting engaged, there's kids. I'm back to this thing of where's I fit in. So I worked for a year and I moved to Spain and I spent two years in Madrid working in tourism, mostly as a nightlife guide. So showing people around different bars and clubs, basically I was paid to get drunk but when you're partying seven nights a week for two years like non-stop you're going to hit rock bottom eventually and that's when my mental health was at its lowest i didn't particularly want to be alive anymore i was starting to struggle with suicidal thoughts couldn't understand why couldn't understand what's going on in my mind i was like i'm out here living an amazing life right i'm meeting new people all the time i i'm just i'm partying like, why am I not happy? What is so wrong that I'm this unhappy that I don't even want to live anymore? 
and it got to a point where I was like, I need to get out of this country. I was like, I need to go. And that's what I did. But I still never found what it was it was missing. So when I got back to England, I started working in pubs. And that was probably, at the time, the worst thing I could have done because the drinking just continued. Finish shift, get drunk. Got day off, get drunk. You know, I still was struggling with suicidal thoughts. I had no one to talk to. Looking back on it now, I was a person I really, really don't like. You know, incredibly selfish. I didn't care about anybody else. It was all me, me, me. It was all about, this is what I need. I need this drink. I need this. I need that. Didn't really have any friends around. What I fought with my friends are just drinking buddies. And this continued for years. And at this point, my nan had already had a stroke. And my mum was dealing with that. My nan survived. Um, but she was like, she was paralyzed down one side. She couldn't talk. She was bedbound. And all I was interested in was drinking. While my mum's dealing with all this. And I look back on it now. And I think guilt is crazy. But it's also... It's addiction. It's the struggles with my mental health. As a man, when you're struggling like that, you, you feel guilty. Like, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I should be able to be strong and I should be able to cope and I should be able to support. But when you're in that mindset, there's literally nothing you can do. And you don't want to get out of bed in the morning when you don't want to go to work. You just want to go and drink. You just want to go to cocaine or whatever. Try and close your mind down and just find some peace is so difficult and it does make you selfish like because we're trying so hard to feel normal i felt like my problems were for me to deal with on my own i think whatever was in my head is something i had to deal with i didn't feel like i could ask for help so i just kept everything to myself and that was the decline was that feeling of feeling so alone in the world. I felt like I wasn't wanted. I felt I didn't deserve anything. You know, I hadn't been in a relationship for a long time. I felt like I wasn't good enough to be loved by anybody. I was like, he's going to love me. I just, I didn't feel worthy. And I didn't feel that I had anything good to offer the world. And I just felt that that pain was just so crushing. So I ended up getting drunk. And I got home that night and thought it would be a good idea to down I think it was three and a half boxes of paracetamol thinking that that would do the job like the headspace I was in I was like I need this to stop somehow I can't live in this space anymore and after about half an hour of taking them I called a friend that I worked with because as soon as I realized what I'd done I knew it was a mistake I thought I don't want to die you just want the pain to stop. I told her what I had done. I called the ambulance myself and I spent the next nearly three days in hospital until they released me. That's when people were kind of like, okay, there's something serious here. People realized something was going on in my head and they were more open to offering support. Josh ended up running his own pub with his fiance at the time. They were drinking a lot and from personal experience, I know that when you have two people abusing alcohol, the relationship can become pretty toxic. Josh was lashing out, and when they eventually broke their engagement off, he began reflecting the toll the relationship had taken on him. It was quite a controlling relationship. I couldn't go 
I couldn't go to see my friends without her. Or if I did, she was always texting me like, oh, who are you with? I found out she was blocking people on my phone. It was very controlled. There was a lot of jealousy there. And I felt really weak. And I struggled to deal with that. I was like, how did I let that happen as a man? How did I let someone control me and manipulate me? And I felt so weak. It was unbelievable. I just, it's back to that worthless feeling. You know, I still was struggling with suicidal thoughts. I had no one to talk to. It's like, who am I? I was like, I'm pathetic. I don't deserve to be part of this world. People deserve better than anything I can offer them. But this time I had a plan. This was the difference. I had a plan. I knew where I was going to do it. I knew how I was going to do it. I had it all figured out in my head. I ended up down by the river, not far from my house, tied a rope around a branch. Like I had a noose around my neck. And by some miracle, a friend texted me to check in and see how I was doing. And I took the phone out of my pocket and read the text and just burst into tears and took that noose off. And I think I'm very, very lucky to still be alive. But I can say that I'm glad I'm still alive. And I think that's the important thing. And I think if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here now. And like, I'm so appreciative that she sent me that text message to the point that I have a tattoo dedicated to her on my forearm, which is a noose with a sunflower coming out of it. And the sunflower is her favorite flower. And it represents darkness and light. You know, no matter how far down and once you hit rock bottom, you can't go any further. Like, and it can only get better. And that's what I learned from that. Things kind of got worse before they got better. The drinking continued on a daily, but it got to a point where I felt alcohol wasn't enough. So cocaine came into the mix. So it's just another thing to add to the issues. During this time, Josh had moved back in with his mum. But with his drug and alcohol abuse worsening, she eventually made the decision to kick him out. With nowhere else to go, he went to live with his father and his wife, sleeping on the couch in their living room. It's there that Josh realised, for the first time, that he needed to take control of his drinking and drugging. So he tried moderation. It's never that simple though when it's an addiction. So I start off with just moderating. I'm also in this really low place because mum doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm losing friends now left, right and centre. I get offered a job back in my hometown and it's working for another pub. And this is the worst decision of my life because it's a local drugs pub. The landlord is a drug dealer. I take the job offer. I say, I can do this. I can go around a pub and not drink and not get involved in drugs. I can have a fresh start. I'm kidding myself. So I move into this pub. I'm there a week. We end up pulling an all-nighter, doing copious amounts of cocaine, drinking the bar dry. We end up going to Bath. We go into the city, carry on the next day. Next thing I know, I'm waking up in a police cell. Don't really remember the arrests. I've just, I've woken up, my wrists are swollen from where the cuffs were. Obviously, I was trying to fight them. I felt like I had an anxiety attack in the police van. And I, I was trying to fight my way out of the police van. That's all I remember. That's my wake-up call. That's where I'm like, shit needs to change. This is where the real 
self-discovery starts. This is where it's like, right, start facing your fucking demons. Start talking. And I do. I started ringing helplines and talking to helplines, trying to get advice. Like, okay, how can I do this? I go on antidepressants. I get so, but I'm taking steps of change. I'm starting to feel better about it. I start trying to rebuild the relationship with my mother and things are going really well there. So I go to visit her every weekend. Some friends of mine I haven't seen for a long time have just moved back to town as well. I get to meet their daughter, which I was never allowed to meet before because of the drugs. And it's like, wow, there's all these things happening. It's like, it's starting to feel good. But there's still this issue with my dad in the back of my head because every time I go away for the weekend and I go back, he didn't once ask me how my weekend was. When I went to visit my sister who lives in Glasgow, I went there for a week. He didn't ask how my sister was. He didn't ask how my week was. Nothing. I'm starting to feel negative again. So there's all these great things happening, but there's still this one negative thing. And in my head, I'm like, he just doesn't fucking care. And that's where I feel in. I'm like, I've got dad who just doesn't give a shit. I relapse. I'd finished work. I went to the local supermarket. I bought a bottle of cracker. Got home. My dad and his wife were away on holiday. Cracked the music up. And I drank that whole bottle. And the next two days, I just slept. While I was asleep for those two days, my dad and his wife had got back. I woke up. While they were out, I knew they'd returned. I texted my mum and said, I need to come home. I was like, I need you. So yeah, I had a one night relapse and regretted it. I was like, fucking wish that didn't happen. Things were starting to get good. I can't let them get bad again. And I've been sober ever since. That's when I started to be open. That's when I've been like, it's okay to talk. It's okay to ask for help. And that's kind of where I started to really work on my mental health then. I was like, okay, it's scary because I spent so many years using alcohol to hide away, just to press those feelings, to feel something that I think makes me feel better. When in reality, it's just pushing it off to the side. Like, that's all you're doing is just pushing it off to the side, but it's still there the next day. With sobriety, I found so much strength to start dealing with my mental health. You know, I'm I'm not a believer in leave the past in the past. I think you you have to face your past. You know, that you have to explore that. You have to because otherwise it's always going to be there in the back of your mind. And it's a crucial part of recovery is exploring that and figuring out what it's done to you and then how you can how you can get better. It's it's a scary prospect. Yeah, it's a process. It's a, and it's fucking scary. Like, don't get me wrong, it is. It can be horrifying what you discover, but it's fucking worth it because you put in the work and you have to put in the work, whether you like it or not, you get better. It is so worth it. Recovery, whichever way you want to look at it, like whatever it is that you're recovering from, you're essentially relearning how to exist in the world and doing it a different way but a better way and when you have those bad mental health days which you know that's probably always going to happen you know the littlest thing will set you up and it will put you in the lowest mood and that 
voice inside your head like it does with me might just go, do you want me to excuse that? Recognize it and be like, it's just a voice. It's all it is. And this is the thing now, now that I'm talking about it all the time and I'm so open, it is just a voice. My head's not creating a plan. It's not saying like, this is how I'm going to do it anymore. Life now, there's still the struggles. There's still the things sometimes where my head will go, you're alone, no one loves you. But that's my head telling me a lie. I know it's a lie. Now I talk when something's going on. I don't hide away. I have friends now that I can, I know that I can turn to and that I can count on and they can count on me. It's authentic friendship. I'm learning to drive finally at the age of 33. I have a goddaughter now that wouldn't have happened. I feel truly happy. Okay, not all the time. Like, happiness is fleeting. You know, life is still life, right? Life is still going to life, whether you like it or not. Recovery to me is improving my life, but also the life of others. It's being of service to people. It's helping others. It's building community. It's finding your people. It's connecting. It's, it's saying it's okay. Like, you can talk. Recovery is... It's about finding the beauty in the day. Even when it's difficult, life is a beautiful thing. Whether it's getting out in nature or yeah, smiling at a stranger and they smile back. Like, it's the tiny little things in the day that add up to a good life. You take your first sip of coffee in the morning, then you build up these little moments in the day. I think that's the thing that makes a good life. You're going to have some bad days in between, but otherwise, there's a beautiful life. You've been listening to Recovery from Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery from Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening.